This is Michael Winship, senior writer at BillMoyers.com. Recently, I traveled back to my hometown, Canandaigua, New York, for a wide-ranging conversation with writer and climate activist Naomi Klein. We spoke before an audience at Finger Lakes Community College. Klein's most recent book is This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate. How does this change everything? The this and this changes everything is climate change. Um, and, and the argument that I make in the book uh, is um, that we find ourselves in this moment where there are no non-radical options left before us, change or be changed, right? This, uh, and, and what we mean by that is that climate change, um, if we don't change course, if we don't change our political and economic system, is going to change everything about our physical world. And that is what climate scientists are telling us when they say business as usual leads to three to four degrees of warming, three to four degrees Celsius warming. Um, that's the road we are on. We can get off that road, but we are now so far along it, we've put off the crucial uh, policies for so long that now we can't do it gradually. We have to swerve, right? And, um, and swerving requires such a radical departure from the kind of political and economic system we have right now that we'd pretty much have to change everything. We'd have to change um, the kind of free trade deals we sign. Um, we would have to change the absolutely central role of frenetic consumption in our cultures. We would have to change the role of money in politics and our political system. We would have to change our attitude towards regulating corporations. Um, we would have to change our guiding ideology. We, you know, since the 80s, we've been living in this era, really, of corporate rule based on this idea that the role of government is to liberate um, the, 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 the power of capital so that they, they can uh, um, you know, have as much economic growth as quickly as possible, and then all good things will flow from that. Um, and that is what justifies privatization, deregulation, um, cuts to corporate taxes offset by cuts to public services. All of this is incompatible with what we need to do in the face of, a, of the climate crisis. We need to invest massively in the public sphere to have a renewable energy system, to have good public transit and, and, and rail. Um, you know, that money needs to come from somewhere, so it's gonna have to come from the people who have the money. And, and, and you know, I actually believe it's deeper than that, that it, that, that it is, um, it's about changing the, 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 the paradigm of a, a culture that is based on separateness from nature, that is based on the idea that we can dominate nature, that we are the boss, that we are in charge. Climate change challenges all of that. Um, it says, you know, all this time that you've been living in this bubble apart from nature, that has been fueled by a substance that all the while has been, um, um, you know, accumulating in the atmosphere. And you told yourself you were the boss. You told yourself that mm -hmm. you could have a one-way relationship with the natural world. But now comes the response. And it, it does say, you, know, you thought you were in charge? Like, think again. And we, you know, we can either mourn our status as, as boss of the world um, and see it as some cosmic demotion, which is why I think the sort of extreme right is so freaked out by climate change mm -hmm. that they have to deny it. It isn't just that it is a threat to their profits, it's a threat to a whole worldview that says, you know, you have dominion over all things. Mm -hmm. and, and that's extremely threatening. Well, you know, I, I was just thinking that in 2012, just after Sandy, uh, Bloomberg Businessweek published a cover story. Yeah. And the cover said, it's global warming, stupid. Yes. And, and now here we are, yeah. the two of us sitting here at the day after a massive snowfall on the Atlantic seaboard. Yeah. Um, what's that telling you, me and the rest of us? That we're think? really stupid? That we're really stupid. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I, I do think that that was a turning point, um, that Sandy was a turning point. You know, if you look at, at, at the, the polling around climate change in this country, before Sandy, um, that was kind of the low point in terms of Americans believing that climate change was real and that humans were causing it. And I, mean, I think that just 
there have been so many messages, um, you know, whether it's the California mm -hmm. drought, the you know, and and the, the wildfires, or you know, the flooding that you know we just saw in the, in, in, the, in the American South. It's just getting harder and harder to deny that there is something really, really strange going on. And this is why why I think we have a structural problem. You, yeah. you can simultaneously understand the medium to long-term risks of climate change and also come to the conclusion that it is in your short-term economic interest to invest in oil and gas, which is why you know anybody who tells you that the market is gonna fix this on its own is lying to you. And I've always been struck too by the military's embrace of, of the reality of climate change. You know, that they've, yeah. they've been warning us for years yeah. about this because that's why they're gonna have to fight a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know that's becoming clear and clear as well, um, because you know, and I have to give credit to John Kerry in terms of the fact that he's been out front making the connection between the civil war in Syria and 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 climate change. That that before the outbreak of civil war, Syria experienced the worst drought in its history, and that led to an internal migration of between 1.5 and 2 million people. And when you have that kind of massive internal migration, um, it exacerbates tension in an already tense place. In addition to that, beforehand, you have the invasion of Iraq, um, which also had a little something to do with climate change in the sense that it was a war um, that had maybe a little something to do with oil, which um, you know is one of the substances causing climate change. Right. Uh, I was going to say that yeah. about the military. Yeah. You also have the military burning these vast amounts of yeah. fossil fuels and yet saying global warming is a danger. So yes, it's, it's, yeah. 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 Well, speaking of John Kerry, mm -hmm. brings up Paris. Mm -hmm. That was a month and a half ago now. Yeah. Um, Perry described, Kerry described it as a victory for the planet. Uh, Michael T. Clare said that Paris should be considered not just a climate summit, but a peace conference perhaps the most significant peace convocation in history. What do you think? So, I mean, Michael said that before the mm -hmm. summit, um, making, making the argument that if we don't do, do what's necessary in the face of the climate crisis, if we don't radically bring down emissions and get to 100% uh, renewable energy, which we can do very, very rapidly, if we don't do that, then we're gonna be facing a world of conflict. And I, that was, became particularly relevant because two weeks ahead of the summit were the horrific terrorist attacks in Paris. And then, you know, the world conversation really shifted, um, you know, almost as dramatically as after 9-11, where, you know, it was just like, okay, we're not, you know, we were talking about climate change, that conversation is pretty much over, and now we're gonna be talking about security all the time. And, you know, being in Paris, I was in Paris for, for three weeks um, in this period, and. Um, it was it was it was pretty striking that the summit, even though it was in Paris, um, even though there were I believe forty thousand people who came to Paris for the summit, it, it barely made the front page mm -hmm. of Le Monde and and Libération, um, except you know for a couple of days because the focus was so uh, you know fervently on security issues. Um, so. You know we need to make the connections, um, and you know it's not to me it's not about saying this is more important than security because that's not an, a conversation you can win. I mean, if people feel immediately threatened, that is going to trump climate change. It's about showing the connections, saying this isn't about um, you know these are not separate issues. We live you know in an interconnected world in an interconnected time, and we need holistic solutions. Um, you know, we all have a crisis of, of inequality, and we need climate solutions that solve that crisis. So in terms of, of what to make of Paris, I think that the deal that, uh, you know, that, that those politicians uh, managed to negotiate, and you know, there was all this euphoria. I've never seen leaders congratulate themselves so fervently. Yes. Um, it was just um, unseemly. It was truly unseemly. Um, and, and, and I have to say that, 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 that the, the reporting was far too deferential, far too cre credulous. You know, there were headlines like, you know, this, this agreement marks the end of the fossil fuel era. Um, and then, you know, a, a couple weeks ago, there was, there was, a, there was a piece uh, interviewing executives from all the major oil companies about whether they felt that the Paris Agreement was going to impact their business model. And all of them that agreed to talk said not at all. And Exxon said, we don't expect it to impact any of our assets. And specifically said, we don't believe this will lead to a single stranded asset. 
And now since we know that the fossil fuel companies have five times more carbon in their proven reserves than is compatible with the two degree temperature target, um, and what, what's in the agreement is that we should actually try to keep it to 1.5 degrees warming Celsius. Right. If they're saying it's not going to impact their assets, what they're saying is, look, this is a non-binding, non-legally binding, non-enforceable agreement, um, and we're going to continue with business as usual as long as we can. That said, um, the fact that there is a very ambitious target in the agreement, no policies to make it a reality, okay? So that the agreement says that we pledge to keep temperatures below two degrees, um, and we'll endeavor to keep them below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, we have already increased temperatures to um, one degree Celsius, okay? So, you know, we are already in the dangerous era of climate change, but we can't stop now. It's just the nature of it. Like, we, you know, we, we, we're, we've already locked in impacts. That, so, 1.5 is an extremely ambitious target. We would need to be cutting our emissions by at least 10% a year or more uh, in wealthy countries. Uh, if we were going to take that target seriously. If you add up all the targets that governments brought to Paris, because the way that it was structured is we have a goal, but because we don't believe in regulation or anything top down, and this is where the ideology comes in, right. um, everybody can just go home and voluntarily say what they're going to do, and then we'll add it all up and hope it works out. And it turns out, no, it doesn't work out. It adds up to three to four degrees of warming, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's, and, and, it, and it, what's amazing about the Paris Accord is that it, it says the goal, and then it says, we note with concern that the INDCs, which is what, the, the, these are the national targets, um, add up to much more warming, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's a very, very strange thing. You know, it's, it's saying, you know, I, I am, you know, I acknowledge that you know I have a drinking problem, and um, you know, or I you know I acknowledge that 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 if I'm going to avoid a heart attack, I need to stop drinking, exercise every day, you know, um, and therefore I'm going to only binge drink on weekends and <laughs> exercise sometimes. And you all have to say that I'm amazing because you have no idea how lazy I used to be. You know? <laughs> so it was, it was a very, very strange moment. But, but you know, the fact that the target is ambitious, the fact that it says what we need to do and then lays out a plan for not doing it, is a tool for the movements. You know, and that's why you know, Bill McKibben, my dear friend and you know, our fearless leader at 350, you know, said, they said 1.5 and we're gonna damn well hold them to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they, have given, um, you know, they have given movements a very, very powerful tool because they're saying this is what's necessary. They're also saying we have no plan to do it. But it's community groups like We Are Seneca Lake and all you know, the, the fossil fuel divestment movement that do have a plan. We know how to do it. It means no new fossil fuel infrastructure. It means investing in 100% renewable energy. So just because our political leaders don't have the courage to meet their own goals mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the conversation stops there. Did you feel that the fact that after the terror attacks there was a clamping down on people being able to demonstrate so and the, protest yeah. outside the conference, was that a real, would that have had an effect, do you think, at all on, on the, uh, the meetings? It's, it's a little hard. I, I do think it ha had an effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Um, uh, so there was a, a blanket ban on demonstrations uh, during the summit. Uh, the way the government defined it under the state of emergency was any, um, any, any, any gathering of more than three people of a political nature was banned. Um, and this was quite extraordinary. Uh, it was quite, you know, I pointed out um, that even George Bush and Dick Cheney didn't ban protests uh, after 9-11. I mean, there was not a blanket ban across the board. Um, and, and, and that's what the Hollande government did. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a very, very fraught situation in France because they were on the eve of, re re the regional elections happened during the summit and the Front National, which is the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, fascist party in France. Um, was gaining in the polls. And so the summit became this tool for the Hollande government that was supposed to be a, you know, a fantastic public relations moment for them. 
and they were bound and determined to get that happy picture at the end where everyone's cheering, going, you're awesome. Um, and they got it. And, and, I, and, I do, and I do think that if demonstrations had been uh, permitted, mm -hmm. there would have been a different kind of debate. And because one of the things that was really striking about the summit is that it was, um, it was, it was pr the most corporate-sponsored UN uh, climate summit, you know, anyone, any of us had ever seen, um, and they've, you know, they've been you know, encroaching corporate sponsorship at previous ones, um, but in France, you've got the nuclear industry, you've got the private water industry, which is very, very strong in France, um, and these huge agribusiness companies and, that sponsored the summit, and so they were marketing their products as climate solutions, whether it was sort of so-called drought-resistant GMO seeds, um, or whether you know, or they call it climate-smart agriculture, which is the new way they're marketing GMOs, um, you know, or companies like Suez Water Companies, um, uh, you know, seeing water scarcity as a market opportunity for obvious reasons. Um, you know, or the huge nuclear power companies marketing nuclear power as a better alternative to renewables. And so they all had a big megaphone inside the summit because they had access, they were sponsoring, they had a whole forum to themselves. We knew that was going to happen, but the streets were supposed to be ours. The streets were the social movements. This was where, you know, we were going to be presenting our alternatives. And, and, then, they, and then we were just told no. You know, you have to stay. You know, you're not allowed on the streets. So you can still have your little, you know, alternative summit in the middle of nowhere in the suburbs. You know, um, that nobody's going to go to. But and, and that and that's the way yeah. it played out. So I think that um, I don't know. I don't know that it would have changed the agreement, but I think it would have changed people's understanding of right. what happened. If I think there would have been a million people in the streets of Paris without that ban. That's what they were projecting. Well, and even within the conference center itself, a lot of countries did, never got to speak. Yeah. Which oh, I yeah. It was, was so tightly controlled. Because I think that they realized that they didn't need a consensus. They just needed a majority to, to get it through, you know. Oh, and it was ugly, and, and it was it, there was they weren't be, there was there was a moment where you know it was it was it was almost like a test of like will you stand with France? Are you mm -hmm. really going to? Are you really going to screw France in their moment, moment of need? Yeah. I mean, it was it was just ugly, bully, and, and you're talking about countries that are fighting for their own survival, right? It's like they, you know, they've got a lot of skin in this game, you yeah. know. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was a very very tightly controlled uh, uh, summit. The the good thing is that I mean it 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 played out over two weeks. I mean these are long events, and. It was kind of amazing to be to watch the city get its courage back because at mm. the beginning of the summit, people were really scared and really tentative about being in the streets and, um, and really not sure whether they were being disloyal, right? But by the end, people were ready to take their city back. They were ready to take their streets back. They were ready to defend liberty. You know, I mean, this thing of like, you know, in France, like liberté, like this, that this is what's under attack, and the way we're going to defend ourselves is we're all going to stay home. Right or go shopping, if this, any of this sounds familiar. But it was, yeah. I mean, it was particularly striking because it was Christmas shopping season, right? So it's like everything's lit up and this and, and 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 everybody's shopping, and you're allowed to shop, you're encouraged to shop, and all the Christmas markets are on and all the football matches are on. You just can't protest. And so at a certain point, you know, the Parisians just said, "Screw it, we're doing mm -hmm. it." And 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 so in the end. That you know, people did take to the streets again, and 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 it was it was it, I felt really lucky to to be part of that process of people getting their courage back, and and um, and it, I think it's it very it was very important. We have less than a year now, as of today, of Obama's administration. What is your assessment of him as an environmental president? Um. Well. You know, he's certainly in his in in, in, in in the final you know year and change in office, he is showing us what leadership looks like. And it, to me it's all the more frustrating in a way um, that he didn't do you know much more of this starting immediately. Um, you know, and and I think that it's just it shows that there you know what he has done in the last 
few years shows that there was actually quite a lot of executive power, which people were saying from the, be from the beginning. You know, mm -hmm. As soon as it was clear in Copenhagen in 2009 that the Senate was blocking uh, Obama you know, from, from introducing meaningful climate legislation, the push was for him to use executive authority, use the EPA, use the tool of federal leases, um, and there was just a refusal to do it. And now we're seeing it, you know, in, in, in the final years, but it's very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, it's vulnerable to a, a next administration. And on, I'm not just talking about, about Trump, I'm talking about Hillary Clinton, right. you, know? you know? When it came to the Keystone fight, um, re ready to rubber stamp that pipeline from day one. So I, I think he's doing, what needs to be done to be able to say that he's got a good legacy, um, but it's not enough. I always remember the moment where, um, you know, af after the cap and trade bill f fell, right? After it collapsed, mm -hmm. Bill McKibben wrote an article to the environmental movement going, look, we tried it your way. We tried it the polite lobbying, closed door, not making a fuss, you know, give the guy a chance, let's compromise route. And it delivered less than nothing. So now we're gonna try something else. We're gonna try street pressure, outside pressure, civil disobedience. We're gonna try being a, a royal pain in the neck and see if that gets results. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I think it, um, we waited too long right. and, and, and lost some precious time. And the thing about climate change is, you know, you hear the clock ticking so loudly, right? Exactly. We just don't have, the ne we don't have four years to relearn that lesson. There was a video you did for The Guardian last spring in which you said that sometimes capitalism gives us a gift. Mm -hmm. And that with the decline in global oil prices, the moment was rife for kicking the fossil industry, fossil fuel industry, while it's down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could extrapolate on that. Yeah. A little bit. Um, I mean, this is, this is, I, I mean, we are in um, a market shock right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Oil has gone from $150 a barrel to below $30 a barrel in a period of 18 months. I mean, this is incredible. Nobody predicted this, um, and it's it's you know it, it's potentially a game changer, but it's it's it, it's complicated, right? I mean, it isn't just okay. Well, this is going to be good for uh, climate action because when oil is cheap, it encourages people to use oil, right? It encourages people to buy bigger cars. It encourages people. Uh, um, you know, to, 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 to treat this commodity as, as, as if it is cheap because it is cheap um, and not think about the impacts. So we actually need oil to be more expensive um, yeah. and that's why this would be an excellent time to introduce a carbon tax. Um, but, you know, this comes back to the issue, of, you know, the argument, the sort of central argument I'm trying to put out there is like we are not going to do the things that we need to do unless we engage in a battle of ideas. It, you know, I, I was, I don't know, has anybody read or uh, started reading Jane Mayer's new book about the Koch brothers? Yeah. Um, yeah. Dark Money. Dark I mean, Money, yeah. I mean it's, it's an extraordinary book because it reminds us that we have been living over the past 40 years um, a very um, planned um, and concerted campaign to change the ideas that govern our society. Um, the Koch brothers set out to change the values, to change the ideas, that pe that, that, the core ideas that people believed in. And there is no progressive equivalent of taking ideas seriously, right? So, you know, we've got lots of funding for campaigns, for, for um, you know, uh, people working on all kinds of different areas, but a meta-narrative, right? Like Charles Koch's meta-narrative, and he said it, you know, explicitly is he is challenging collectivism. He is challenging the idea that when people get together, they can do good, right? Um, and he is putting forward the worldview that is, we're all very familiar with, that if you free the individual to pursue their self-interest, that will actually benefit the majority. So you need to 
attack everything that is collective, whether it's labor rights or whether it's public health care or whether it's regulatory action on, on it, it, all of this falls under the meta-narrative of an attack on collectivism. So what is the progressive meta-narrative? Who funds it? Who, you know, wh you know, who is working on changing ideas back and saying, actually, when we pool our resources, when we work together, we can do more and better than when we only act as individuals. You know, I don't think we, we value that. And so, we, so here we are in this moment when, of course, we should be introducing a carbon tax. But it's like almost unthinkable that we could. I mean, tax, we can't say tax. Everyone hates taxes, right? So you know, we can't, we can't avoid those battle of ideas. We can't avoid those big discussions about you know, what our values are. Because if we don't engage in them, then we aren't going to be able to introduce these very simple policy solutions. So yeah, OK, the argument I made about, about the, oil, the oil price shock yeah. is this creates the conditions where we could really change the game, but we're not going to be able to do it if we're not willing to talk about an aggressive carbon tax. Right. You know? But to, to me, I mean, I, I think the Koch brothers are so interesting in the sense that it, it really does show us how much ideological ground mm -hmm. we've, we've lost, but they never take their eye off it. You know? Charles Koch was asked recently um, whether he feels he has had enough influence. He said, well, they're, they're, they're not, they haven't nationalized us, right? right. That's his concern, yeah. right? So, but then you think about it, we would like, it would be so unthinkable to just talk about, well, why don't we nationalize the Coke, Coke industries? Like, I mean, that, that's like a crazy thing to say, but he's thinking about it. He's also worried about, he's sort of like, you know, if I spend $900 million on this election, by God, I want to be paid for what I, you know, I want to get something back for my money. And it's, it's frightening what he expects to get. But he's disappointed in all the candidates. He, also, yeah, he said yeah, in that same interview. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's disappointed, but he knows it could be worse. Yes. Um, and I mean, it's amazing how much money they need to spend. I mean, another way of thinking about it is, I mean, it's extraordinary how much money they, you know, they have to spend. And we, they don't always win. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I do think that it's going to get harder. I mean, for fossil fuel companies, it, it, it really is going to get scary. And, and they're terrified of the Exxon investigations, right? Absolutely. Because it does, it, it cre you know, it, if Exxon has been systematically misleading the public, if they knew, and if they, I mean, all of this is going to be coming out, then this raises huge questions about the legitimacy of their profits. And Exxon is the most profitable company in the history of the world, $42 billion in profits in a single year, right? And here we are, unable to pay for public transit, unable to pay for the kinds of infrastructure that we need to deal with the crisis that they have created, right? This is a conversation that they are going to really try to have, you know, not happen. But even, no. you know, and I know there are people here who are working on a carbon tax, right? And it's great. But often, you'll hear people say, well, it has to be revenue neutral. It has to be fee and dividend. Don't call it a tax, okay? Because we accept as a premise, we accept the Coke framework as a premise that if we're going to take money from people, we have to give it all back, all of it, right? That's what fee and dividend means. It means we will tax you and we will give you the exact same amount back that you gave us. That leaves the government with nothing. So right. how, what, are you, what are you going to use to pay for transit? What are you going to use to pay for a renewable energy grid? How are you going to get to 100% renewables? We have to talk about the fact that we need more money. It has to come from somewhere, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think it's, it, it, is, it is really worth uh, studying yeah. how the center was moved in that way. Yeah, the, the famous Overton window <laughs> moving us rightward. <laughs> And the degree, I mean, just going back to what you were saying about the degree of deniability is just so flabbergasting. And I was hoping you would tell the story that you tell about um, covering the annual meeting of the Heartland Institute and what happened there with Jim Inhofe, which is what is <laughs> such a great story. So the, the Heartland Institute, which is a free market think tank that hosts this, um, this annual climate change denial summit, um, they, uh, um, I mean, their influence is, is waning. They're very interesting, um, you know, because I think that, that somehow they, they managed to market themselves as somehow having any, some scientific credibility, like, but they're not. I mean, they, they, they are a free market think tank, and when I, we interviewed Joseph Bass, who's the head of the Heartland Institute, um, I asked him how he got 
get interested in climate change, and he said, very frankly, we realized that if the science was true, that would allow um, liberals to, to, to justify pretty much any kind of regulation. So we took another look at the science, right? <laughs> I mean, he's very frank about this. And you know, I, the argument in, in, my, in, my, in the book, I, the, the name of the chapter is the right is right, mm -hmm. you know? Because I, you know, they're not right about the science, but I believe that they understand the implications of the science better than most liberals, okay? In the sense that they absolutely understand that if climate change is real, it is the end of their ideological project. The entire scaffolding on which their attack on regulations, attack on collective action, rests, falls apart. Because of course you need a collective action, of course you need to regulate corporations. Um, you know, like it, it, it's over. It's game over for them. So they have to do everything possible to deny the science. Um, and I, that what's amazing to me is how many liberal think tanks mm -hmm. devote almost no energy to talking about climate change. So the issue is just is 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 is, is um, how hard it is to change people's mind when they're in, as invested in in these ideas, um, you know, ideologically, but also, you, you know. Ex Funding-wise, I mean, Jim Hoff gets a lot of money from the coal industry, and so he um, was supposed to be the keynote speaker of the heart of this particular Heartland uh, uh, conference. It was advertised; people were extremely excited to hear from him. And Joe Bast um, announced in the morning that uh, that that James Inhofe was sick and he was not going to be um, regaling them that morning. People were very disappointed, but he um, now it. it He's, he, it came out later. We didn't know this at the time. Right. Um, I looked into it after what was wrong with Jim Inhofe, because I wasn't sure, it was, was he really sick? Um, or did he just, for some reason, think it wasn't a good idea to hang out with right. those crazies? Right. Um, it turns out he really was sick, and, and, and he was sick because, and he explained this, he'd gone swimming in a lake in Oklahoma, um, and it was in the middle of a heat wave. And this, there was an outbreak of blue-green algae, mm -hmm. and, and which is linked to climate change. Like basically, he basically had a climate ch change illness, <laughs> and this is why he could not speak at the at the climate denial conference. Yeah. But this did not make him go, oh, maybe they have a point. And it, it, he sent a letter, just you know, saying I can't be there because I'm sick. But basically, from his hospital bed, going, right. keep up the good work. <laughs> so I mean, I think that it's. You know, people, people sometimes ask me, like, well, how can I change the mind of my extremely right-wing uncle who, you know, only listens to Fox News and so on? Um, and, you know, I tell them, honestly, I'm not sure that you sh should devote that much energy to trying to change his mind. Like, you can if you want to, but I'm, first of all, I'm not sure you can do it. Right. Um, but also because there are, there's a huge amount of, uh, there, there's a much larger group of people out there who are not that invested um, in protecting an extreme ideological worldview or protecting their own financial interests, um, who actually probably believe that climate change is real, but are scared, um, you know, don't, don't know what they can do about it, are sort of in a state of kind of soft denial like most of us are in, like, oh, I can't look at it, it's just too awful. Um, that's a much better place for us to invest our energy right. um, than you know, trying to convince James Inhofe, because if getting you know, a climate change-related illness didn't impact him in any way, <laughs> I don't think you just like laying out the science is going to help so What brought you to this point? How did you become this articulate advocate of this cause? What, what changed you? What was, when you say this changes everything, mm -hmm. what changed Naomi Klein? Mm -hmm. Um, so, I think my wake-up call was, was, was Katrina, was, was definitely Katrina. Um, and I was, I, was, uh, I was writing the book that I wrote before this, I was writing The Shock Doctrine, and I was in um, uh, New Orleans during Katrina while it was still underwater, um, and uh, you know, doing reporting. I was there when uh, you know, um, there was all the lobbyists were descending on Baton Rouge uh, with their wish list, close down the public housing, um, privatize the school system, and uh, you know New Orleans was it, it was just such a horrifying thing to witness. 
firsthand. And you know, to me, it's one of those events that actually becomes more shocking with time. You know, in some things you're like, kind of get used to, but uh, I think actually what happened in, in New Orleans, it, it was so shocking that we couldn't actually believe it or metabolize it, and in particular, the fact that African-American residents were given one-way tickets out of their city, I mean, forcibly relocated at gunpoint. People were loaded onto buses, and there was, they were, there was no plan to bring them back, and while they were gone, their homes were bulldozed. I mean, this is, to me, the more I think about it, the more shocking it becomes. And there was so much happening in that moment that I actually think that we could not fully understand that this was, um, you know, local residents were calling it genocide, and I think they had every right to call it that. I've been pretty apocalyptic up till now, um, but you know, this changes everything. Is actually an, an argument for this. This is our best chance to build a better society. Um, you know, if the flip side of the fact that that the right understands that um, if this science is true, it means their ideological project collapses, is that if the science is true, and it is, it's an opportunity to put forward another vision for how we want our society to function. We have to do it. There is going to be some kind of adaptation and transition in the face of climate change. That model does not serve us. There will have to be new infrastructure. There will have to be new jobs. What kind of jobs do we want them to be, right? Right now in California, 4,000 of the state's 10,000 firefighters are prison inmates being paid a dollar an hour to put their lives at risk fighting fires, right? That's what this economic system does in the face of climate change. We could be fighting for them to be living wage jobs. We could, be, we could say the people who got the worst deal under the extractive you know, energy model should be first in line to have energy democracy, to own and control their own renewable energy, to create jobs and keep skills in communities. We have examples of this working. Um, Germany has created 400,000 jobs in their energy transition. So much of it is decentralized yeah, and community-owned, exactly. 900 new energy cooperatives in Germany. Um, so you know, we can do this in a way that heals wounds dating back to our country's founding. Um, this can be a process of, of, of healing and, and reconstruction. I mean, I, I think it can be incredibly inspiring. Um, so, I forget what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> I, was I, I, I was liking what I was hearing. So, so, no, I, I was actually asking about how you arrived at, at this So moment. how I arrived at it. So I, I, so I arrived at it because, um, you know, so the shock doctrine is about how our current system deals with crises, right? Deals with shocks. And when I started that book, I was talking about wars, right? I went to Iraq after the invasion and, and, and reported for Harper's about how the Bush administration was treating Iraq as their sort of playground to, to, in, to, to, to introduce like extreme pro-corporate policies like a 15% flat tax and to privatize all of Iraq's industries and to get rid of the labor code and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, I was looking at the history of how economic crises were used to push through extreme privatization policies, and, you know, we see it happening in Southern Europe right now, in Greece, and Spain, Portugal, um, and then as I was writing The Shock Doctrine, I started to see it happening after natural disasters. So at first, the first reporting I did was after the Asian tsunami, um, so, you know, this was you know, devastating natural disaster not linked to climate change, um, but that tsunami uh, cleared beaches in, um, you know, in Thailand and Sri Lanka, in India, and in country after country what we saw is developers using that as an opportunity to um, push new land laws that allowed resorts to take land from farmers and small fishing boats. Sri Lanka introduced a water privatization bill two days after the tsunami. Mm -hmm. um, so, so my mind started to look, to focus on natural disasters. Then Katrina happened, right? right? So this is how we got to it. So, um, you know, for me, Katrina was like, am I seeing the future? Like, what I felt when I was in New Orleans was this was like science fiction, but now this science fiction future that we're, we're so afraid of is already here in most parts of the world. 
So that's, you know, so I, even though I see, I see an opportunity for the shock of climate change to be a positive transformational moment. And I see that also because when I was researching the shock doctrine, I, um, you know, I, I, I also researched how shocks like the market crash of 1929 became progressive right. moments and moments to expand democracy and to, to expand participation and the inverse of the shock doctrine. I believe that sh climate change could be that if we seized it. Uh, the, and um, you know, but but what motivates me is not sort of airy fairy la la like this is going to be so great. It's I like what motivates me is is New Orleans. What motivates me is Katrina. What motivates me is that if we if if progressives do not enter this space with a vision of how we respond to crisis that brings us together rather than apart, we are looking at a future of Katrina's mm -hmm. because there will be more and more climate shocks intersecting with weak and neglected public infrastructure, right? When the successful campaign of the Koch brothers and their ilk, which has systematically defunded the public sphere, intersects with more and more uh, shocks to the system, which climate change uh, generates, and also which capitalism just generates on its own, you know, through market shocks, right? Um, like the 2008 financial crisis, what will happen under our current system is that rather than course correct, mm -hmm. it will, though each shock becomes an opportunity for more and more privatization, which is what happened in New Orleans, right? More attacks on the public sphere. So rather than learning the lesson of, of, of Katrina, which is if you neglect the public sphere, when a shock comes, you will be completely unprepared, right? FEMA can't find New Orleans for five days. People are abandoned on their rooftops um, and, in the soup, and in the Superdome. The, the state is, is totally non-functional. What's the answer? Privatize the school system, you know, shut down public housing, um, and create this kind of corporate utopia. So the problem with climate change is it's gonna keep delivering more and more of these shocks, not, you know, not just weather shocks, but budget shocks. And you think about the, price tag attached to, to, mm -hmm. to, you know, to, to an event like Sandy, right? Mm -hmm. Many billions of dollars. And, um, and so it's gonna create bankruptcy. So what happens? Look at Flint, right? Look, look at Flint, Michigan. You look at what's happening across Michigan where, where, where you know, cities are handing over power because they've gone bankrupt to private managers and then you have water crises and you know, layering on top of that, it's not just inequality, it's, you know, it, it's racism and, and fear, security fears, people become more fearful of each other. That's the other thing we saw in New Orleans was this sort of vigilante um, violence. Right. So, I mean, climate change is an accelerant, right. right? So we often talk about, like, you know, when you in interview a climate scientist like Michael Mann or, or James Hansen, and you say, well, did climate change cause this storm? And you know, they won't say, well, no, it didn't cause it, but it loaded the dice, right? So you were gonna have the storm anyway, but because of climate change, you've got this super storm, right? So but what I would say is climate change does that, but not just with the weather, right? Like if you've got a racist society, if you've got a problem of racism in your society, and then you add climate change to it, then it goes crazy. Right? If you've got a problem of inequality and then you add climate change to it, then it, then, then it becomes like yeah. sci-fi. So my, what brings me to this is that I'm not just worried about things getting hotter. And this is what I think that I wish more environmentalists would wrap their heads around this. This is not just about things getting hotter and wetter. It's about things getting meaner, right? And that's why we have to talk about values yeah. and who we want to be in the face of this crisis. You know, if you have a culture that treats people like they're disposable, that doesn't value people, um, then when you confront a crisis like climate change, um, those values will govern how you confront that crisis. And making a connection between the refugee crisis, where, you know, I mean, yeah. I, the statistic this week was that 15 children died just this past week. Mm -hmm. um, uh, off of Greece. I think more than 45 people drowned, right? Mm -hmm. So if we live in a culture that allows people to disappear beneath the waves because we don't value their lives enough, 
then it's not that big a step to allow whole countries to disappear beneath the waves, which is what we are doing when right. we allow temperatures to increase um, you know, by three degrees and four degrees. Well, I want to get to some of these questions because I've got to tell you, these are great questions. I'm going to start off with, of the candidates running for president, <laughs> who do you believe will most effectively and aggressively move the issue of climate change? Um, Would you like me to repeat? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, think, um, I think Bernie Sanders, um, of, of the candidates, has by far the, the best track record. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's been interesting. Okay, so leaving aside the, you know, the, the Republicans, um, so if we're talking about Democrats, I'm assuming we're doing that, because right? I don't think any of the, I, uh, yes, so. <laughs> it's been interesting. In a single word, she summed up the Republicans. <laughs> um, I mean, what, what, it's been interesting that, you know, the climate movement has become uh, you know, so strong in, in the past few years um, and so important in terms, it's become, it, it, you know, it, it's so important for, for the base and it's, it's recognized um, by all the candidates that they're sort of competing with one another over, you know, who's more opposed to Keystone, who's more opposed to Arctic drilling, who's going to prosecute Exxon more and so on. So, I mean, if we're just looking at what people are saying, um, you know, they're actually pretty close together. I mean, H Hillary's climate policies are, are pretty good. Bernie's are better. Um, but if we're looking at track record, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Bernie was standing with us on Keystone from the very beginning. Um, and, you know, Hillary was on the wrong side of Keystone um, from the beginning. Uh, so, you know, obviously I, I, would, I would trust him more, also because of where his money is coming from. Um, and uh, I think her ties to the oil and gas industry and the banks that fund them are really, really troubling. And, you know, I, I frankly, um, you know, I generally stay out of electoral politics and candidate endorsements sure. and so on. Um, and I, you know, I haven't endorsed a candidate. Um, but I, I, I must say that I, that it's, it's pretty darn exciting that Bernie is, is um, and, and his operation has um, ha, uh, advanced as much as they have and have, should, have, have proven the critics wrong again and again. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a, a pretty interesting moment that where a candidate as um, you know, radical, if that's what you want to call them, and plain spoken, and certainly as independent as Bernie, mm -hmm. um, uh, could have as much momentum as he has. And I don't, you know, I, I don't agree with him on uh, several foreign policy right. issues. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't think he's a perfect candidate. If I dreamed up, uh, you know, who I would like to see playing this role, it might, it wouldn't, it probably wouldn't be Bernie, you know? well, but he's, do, who's, he's doing it. So at a certain point, you got, you've got to just kind of say, wow, like they're pulling it off. Like, who's, who's not running that you would like to see run? Elizabeth Warren or someone like that? Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen Elizabeth mm. Warren run. I would have liked to see somebody um, who, um, you know, looked a little bit like the changing face of, of, of America. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, um, but, that said, you know, this is the person who is saying what needs to be said um, and who is building a movement that is gaining ground that, that people said could not be gained. And um, so I've had to ask myself, okay, well, why aren't, why aren't I publicly supporting Bernie? You know, this is a, this is a, these, next five years are so critical when it comes to climate change. Um, and even, you know, looking at, you know, how, what is gonna happen based on what we find out in these, in these Exxon investigations, who would we trust right. to make the most of that? I mean, to me, it's absolutely no question that, that, that uh, you know, I can't think of anybody better than Bernie on that front. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unless Bill decided to Unless Bill McKibben himself decided Yeah, if, well, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, What is the most viable and efficient source of renewable energy, do you think? 
Most valuable. I mean, I, I, I think that the, the sort of wonderful thing about renewable energy is that it isn't one size fits all. I mean, it really requires you to think about where you live and where you are in nature. I mean, and this is this is why, um, you know, I think it is. It's if if when we shift, when we think about shifting our energy from fossil fuels to renewables, it isn't just sort of flipping a switch. It really is a paradigm shift because yeah. what fossil fuels sold was the illusion that it doesn't matter where you live, right? Uh, well, it would, the, the illusion of, sep of separateness from nature and dominance. And you know, this was some of the most interesting research for me when I was writing the book was going back and reading the marketing material for the early steam engines, hmm. um, the way it marketed, the way that the, the Watt steam engine marketed itself to British industrialists and um, you know, the owners of fleets of ships was you, for, for the first time, you are the boss. You can sail your ships even when there's no wind. You can build your factory wherever you want. You don't have to be next to rushing water. It's very specific, right? Because before that, you had to build your factories where there was hydropower, right? Um, so that's the wonderful thing about uh, about renewables. You you actually have to think about where you live again. You know, you do. You know, may, maybe maybe. Maybe solar make, makes sense where you are, wind makes sense. It is not going to be the same everywhere, or one will offset the other. Um, you know, I, I find decentralized renewables, whether it's wind or solar or small-scale hydro, to be most exciting because it decentralizes economic power at the same time as it decentralizes um, uh, power. Um, so whenever we can, because we, we face multiple crises, we have a crisis of concentrated wealth and concentrated power, why wouldn't we seize the opportunity as we transition from fossil fuels to decentralize economic power as much as we can? Mm -hmm. Is it biologically possible to reverse the climate change with 7 billion people on the planet, not just burning fossil fuels, but eating, drinking, and this person says pooping, etc.? <laughs> So we're not talking about reversing climate change. I mean, yeah. we're, we're talking about preventing catastrophic climate change, which is the road we're on. Um, at the same time as we do the things that we, we can do everything possible to, to get to 100% renewable energy, it does mean reducing demand. Um, but the, the, the issue around uh, energy demand um, is much more about the consumption habits of a small minority of the world's population than it is about numbers of people on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is a, a, a relatively small percentage of people on this planet that are responsible for the vast majority of emissions. Um, in, in our countries, and Thomas Piketty has done a really interesting breakdown of the connection around um, wealth and emissions, uh, showing um, that you know, we really are talking about, I think, 10% mm -hmm. of the world's population being responsible for the vast majority of emissions. So when we change the subject to population, which is what you know, I think this, this is pointing to, right? right? Um, my concern, it's not the population isn't an issue, but I think that it changes the, the, the conversation away from the consumption habits of the wealthy to the procreation habits of the poor. Mm -hmm. which is convenient for us. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, the truth is, is that where population is growing fastest are in parts of the world that are the poorest and have the lowest emissions, like sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so um, there's certainly issues around how we consume, um, but I don't, uh, I, I don't think that population is the overriding issue. I think it's our consumption habits. Right sort of along similar lines, shifting to sustainable organic agriculture mm -hmm. is now being touted as a way to capture most of the excess CO2. Is this a real contender for dealing with climate change and why wasn't it part of the Paris <coughs> conference? Carbon offsetting right. and, um, and uh, um, not organic agriculture, which is what this, this question is about, but other ways of um, of using plants to capture CO2 mm -hmm. are part of the Paris Climate uh, Accord in ways that are worrying. Because one of the things that's most striking about the Paris Climate Accord is that 
The word uh, oil um, is not mentioned once, neither is coal. Um, they talk about getting to zero net emissions, right? Um, which is code for um, you can emit as long as you plant lots of trees to absorb those emissions, right? right? Um, so there's a lot of worries about around how that will be done, not through organic agriculture, but through tree farms and land grabs, um, and you know the, the record or, um, of those kinds of projects is. Um, is particularly bad for indigenous people, um, tends not to be done very equitably at all. Mm-hmm. And it's usually just an excuse for us to continue to pollute on the idea that if we plant trees somewhere else, it'll fix it for us. Um, but you know, absolutely um, changing the way our agriculture system works, embracing agroecological methods that don't use fossil fuel inputs and that sequester carbon in the soil are, is, is a huge part of the solution. And, and so is tree planting, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not to offset our emissions, but actually to draw down carbon in the atmosphere um, that is already there, because we are already at 400 parts per million. You know, I'm on the board of 350 because we need to actually get down to 350. Mm-hmm. And, but this is a slow process, um, and it is going to, you know, the, the best ways to do that. Um, are uh, not tree farming, but reforestation, uh, sustainable reforestation, and also agroecological farming. Mm-hmm. How do we activists engage and mobilize people whose lives are too busy, too consumer-oriented, too focused on improving opportunities, fortune for their children, mm-hmm. to consider climate change the number one political and economic issue yeah. that it is? It's a great question. Um, and. I think that the, 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 first, the first way I'll respond is, is how we don't do it. We don't do it by going, my issue is more important than your issue. Um, you know, like you may be worried about whatever your issue is, you're worried about feeding your kids, you're worried about education, you're worried, um, but none of that's gonna matter if the world cooks, so you all should care about climate change. That's the way to really piss people off. Um, and, um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the, the, the way you do it um, is by coming together um, as a community. Um, it's something I think that can really only happen locally. And, 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 and dream together. What would uh, a response to climate change be that addressed the issues that are most important to people. I mean, of course, people are more focused on their kids' futures and their immediate economic concerns, and people are under enormous economic stress uh, right now. And it's not about saying, well, you know, it, don't worry about fighting for $15 an hour, um, you should care about climate change. It's about saying, we can create you know, millions of living wage jobs in public transit and in renewable energy and reimagining our cities, we can improve our services um, uh, if we take this crisis seriously. If we if we engage in this battle of ideas, so I think it's you know politics is always about meeting people where they're at, and I think that we have made um, some real errors in the environmental movement by engaging in this. My issue is bigger than your issue. Um, you know, what does it matter <laughs> if? You know, if, if everything burns, um, that is that 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 really alienates people because so many people in this country are engaged in legitimately very very urgent issues, whether they're fighting police violence, criminalization, um, you know, or for jobs that allow them to you know have a life and support their kids or healthcare. So it's really about connecting the dots and laying out this vision. And it is an expansive vision, and I think we need not to be afraid of that. You know, I think there's, there's really two camps out there, and I, you know, um, where there's, there's, there's this sort of kind of scarcity, like this scarcity worldview where it's like there's a finite amount of political energy and we have to get people to care about climate change and not these other issues um, because our issue is so important. And there's even a sense among some that maybe climate change is more winnable than some of those other issues. Um, you know, poverty has always been with us, but everybody's, elect, uh, everybody's affected by climate change, so we need to focus on climate change instead of that. Um, and 
And then there's the climate justice movement, mm-hmm. right? And the climate justice movement is really about marrying um, the fights for economic and racial and gender justice with um, the, the imperative to, to get off uh, fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's a much more winning strategy. It's more complicated in terms of how you build those coalitions. It's really, really hard to get in rooms with people you don't usually work with and try to find common ground. Um, but I, I think that it's our only chance of winning. And, and I say this because, you know, when you think about, um, uh, you know, the math of, 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 of fossil fuel divestment, the, the, the fact that these fossil fuel companies have five times more carbon in their reserves than is compatible with what our politicians say we need to do. They're fighting for su- their survival. That's why they fight so hard. That's why they pour so much money uh, into opposition groups. And, and um, you know, it's not a coincidence that the Koch brothers made their money in fossil fuels, right? They have so much to lose if we take this crisis seriously. Um, and I think that, that the, the climate movement has always been hurt by this perception that this is a luxury issue, that this is the issue for people who don't have more urgent economic mm-hmm. issues to worry about. Um, and this kind of idea that this is kind of a, a bourgeois uh, concern. Right. And so I think that when climate action is married with those urgent needs for jobs and and, you know, and, and better services and a better quality of life for people, that's when people will fight to win. That's right. when people will fight because they're fighting for their lives. They're, and they're fighting not just for the future, they're fighting for their present. You know? and, and, and I think that's the kind of movement we haven't had yet. We haven't mm-hmm. seen what that looks like yet. Great place. That's a great place for us to end, I think.